Hey everyone, after more than 15 years in the business, I finally got a book published. If you want to do me the biggest favor in the whole world, please head over to MikeyOp.com and buy a copy. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com, and the book is named Ardor, and it's about psychics and the history and future of the universe. I wrote it, and I think you'll love it. Hi, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week, we have Amos Smith on the line. He's an author, certified counselor, and workshop leader. He's published two books with a third on the way. His first book is called Healing the Divide, Recovering Christianity's Mystic Roots. And his second book is titled Be Still and Listen, Experience the Presence of God in Your Life. The third book is The Journey of Holistic Mysticism, Experience the Integrated Spirituality of the Quakers. And I am from California, and I've always been intrigued in a very positive way with the Quakers. So I was very excited when we got to interview Amos. So Amos, how are you doing? Good, good. Thanks for having me uh, on the show, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. We normally ask guests how old they are, where they grew up, and what generation, if any, they think they belong to. So I am 52. I um, I grew up all over the world because my dad was in diplomatic service, um, but I have lived most of my uh, time in the you know in the states since I was 10 years old on the on the West Coast, and I currently uh, live in Washington State. Um, what was the other thing you asked? Uh, what generation, if any, do you consider yourself a member of? You know, I, uh, I graduated from high school in, uh, in 1988. Uh, so I, I guess, uh, you know, I grew up in the, in the 80s um, in Virginia. And, and so that makes me, what, uh, generation... I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I think they call you Gen X, but, you know, the reason we ask the question is actually the beauty of the answer, which is when you have uh, that little concern for it, that's like a perfect answer, in my opinion, you know, because that's the whole, um, there's a big, like, thing going on in a lot of the things I see and listen to where people believe we're in a culture war, and uh, it is definitely a goal of mine for people not to believe that we're in any war, because uh, I don't believe in war, so I like to ask people what generation, because I think that as you listen to people from generations you stereotype and realize that they're all so diverse, it starts to break down how we stereotype and, and categorize ourselves and other people. Right. Well, you know, I'm, I'm married. I think, I think you are too. And, you know, every morning I, I could, I could think of, you know, a few reasons why I should, you know, uh, stiff arm my wife. Right. But of course, of course that's ridiculous. Why would I want to do that? It's the same thing. I think, you know, generations, you can think, Oh, oh you know, this is the reason why I should, you know, stiff arm that generation. But, but, you know, we don't need any more of that. Yeah, exactly. And man, your like mini biography that you just gave us is so interesting. So I'll definitely want to be asking you about the diplomatic service. And actually, uh, one of my jobs is indexing books. And today I was indexing a book on global warming, climate change, and the United Nations. And they talked about how there's a United Nations Quaker Council. The basic question I think that our audience would want to know is how do you define what a Quaker is? And can you explain to the average layman what a Quaker is? Yeah, so I was a, I was a member of Santa Cruz Friends Meeting in Santa Cruz, California throughout the 90s. And um, and now I'm also a member of uh, of a Quaker meeting and and have been you know a member for uh, for a few years. Basically, uh, I think of the Quakers as probably the most co- uh, contemplative arm of the uh, of the Protestant you know movement. It believes in the in the sacredness of silence, um, especially the particular um, you know Quaker. Um, denomination I'm a part of, which is FGC, if you want to call it a denomination. 
And it believes that, you know, being immersed in silence, uh, at least for one hour during meeting for worship uh, once uh, a week, uh, really invigorates the rest of the week. And it, it has uh, something that's valuable and that's, um, that's important. And there is something about the silence when you start to become acclimated to it or marinate in it, that it really does start to change you. And it, it, I think it connects you with your deeper self. And also brings uh, over time uh, more peace and more joy and uh, and just more contentment in, in life. That's a wonderful answer. I had so much to unpack in that, but I would like to know um, how you define deeper self. Um, so you know, the historic Quakers they said you go to meeting for worship and you um, you do what they call waiting worship or you call it could call it silent prayer. Some people do centering prayer, whatever you want to call it. It's basically um, you all of the usual surface level talk that you have going on, and everybody has you know plays tapes in their minds, and they usually play some tapes just over and over again. But if you're able to just let go of all that and just uh, sit in the silence, um, you start to uh, resonate with uh, you know what some authors have referred to as true self. I think it was Thomas Merton who was one of the first who often talked about the the difference between true self and false self. And true self is is connected to a mission that everybody you know has gifts and they have something that resonates deep within them, some kind of mission, something they're on this planet to do. And and so connecting with that, especially in the context of of silence, um, you know, it, it makes you more authentic because you you start to become. Uh, revitalize and uh, and vigorous um, and, and energize for whatever this mission is. Um, and, and, you know, so many of the historic Quakers, that's what they talk about. They talk about, you know, just connecting with, with, with some passion that you have uh, for making this world a better place. So that's what I mean by true self, because I really do believe everybody uh, deep down does have a passion. They do have a mission. Um, some of them have not found it yet, but, uh, but, you know, we all have that. That's very profound. And I can see why you said it's considered the contemplative arm of Protestantism. I don't want to get into yet like Quakerism and how it ties into overall Christianity and all that. And we may not even have time for it because I'm really just much more interested in the philosophical side and how much it sounds like this is something that predates a lot of like the hippie mindfulness movement, which is hilarious to me because you mentioned living in Santa Cruz and that's where I'm from is a little north of there, like Oakland Bay Area, but I spent a lot of time in Santa Cruz. And so I, I'm fascinated because this idea of the sacredness of silence and this idea of like what you can gain from immersing yourself in silence is more captivating than any other phrasing I've heard for it. Um, I meditate personally and I have a mantra and it works and I love it. But when you sit in silence, is it better with a group? Do the dynamics change? Can you describe how you sit in silence? Yeah, I, I think, Mike, one thing that might be helpful, though, is, you know, we are a very goal-oriented society and we always have goals goals out in front of us. And so I, I would like to explore just briefly, what is the goal of silence? What are we trying to get to? And I really think I really think after all of my reading, um, there's this one phrase in the Philokalia, and I consider the Philokalia the greatest, you know, mystical text in the Christian tradition. It's it's celebrated in the Eastern Orthodox uh, tradition, but it's becoming more discovered in the West now. But there's this one phrase in the Philokalia, and it just it's a it's a mind blowing phrase it, it, for me. It says, um, "There is nothing that I desire that I do not already possess." Now, now that that is a totally revolutionary sentence. It it, it totally um, takes the legs out of the market economy because if you're truly content on every level, 
and if there's absolutely nothing that you desire, then there's nothing that can be you know pitched at you or marketed uh, to you because you have everything you need. You know, and the, and that was the ultimate revelation for me when I was at St. Benedict's Monastery in Snowmass, Colorado. I was doing a 10-day uh, centering prayer retreat, and on about day seven. I was in this deep, deep silence, and I felt this profound peace. I felt um, just a deep, abiding joy. Um, and I, th- I thought to myself, you know, if I die tomorrow, uh, that's okay. Because I, I, I've experienced now what I, I want to, to experience in this life. I, I've, I've experienced now what I needed, what I came here for. And, and so it's a, you know, that's the, that's the beauty, that's the, you know, the revelation of, of where all this silence is leading to is, um, you know, it's hard to even explain or put into words, but that's the best I can do. You're very eloquent, and uh, everything you say is making sense to me. And I think because you mentioned death and, you know, you said, if I die tomorrow, that's okay. It is an opportune time to get to the point of the show, which is to ask you, what do you think happens when you die? And of course, I'd like to know, does the Quaker faith have a specific answer to that? And does yours disagree, agree with it, if at all? Um, so I have I have kind of a, a simple approach, you know, to to this question. Like, I I just tell people, you know, um, I don't have to imagine hell. I have seen people in hell. I saw an addict who was, um, you know, he was addicted to uh, heroin. And and he was, uh, you know, in the the throes of that addiction. And he was, um, I mean, just to look at him was excruciating. And and I just, he was in total hell, you know. And and so I, I didn't have to try to imagine some hell out there or Dante's Inferno or anything like that, because it was right in front of me. And, and I just thought to myself, you know, if there is a hell, um, you know, it will be a continuation of whatever our state of consciousness is in this world. So for that person, you know, that state of hell that they're in, if they were to pass away, you know, uh, let's say the following day, I think whatever, you know, uh, experience they're having in those moments that that's just going to continue in in some other form after they after they pass. I have also seen people who are in total heaven. You know, they um, they are just they radiate joy, they um, they radiate contentment. People are drawn to them because of this. Um, it's not something that they have to you know try to create. It just uh, spontaneously emerges and. There's just a, a feeling of, of peace uh, around them, and there's just nothing that, that needs to be solicited or, uh, you know, there's no manipulation. There's just, um, you know, the joy of somebody who's found themselves and who is uh, content in their own skin. So, um, so you know, so then if, if that person dies the next day, I think uh, wherever they go, it will be a continuation of their their experience, their lived experience. I, you know, I'm a person that I, I don't give a lot of credence to belief systems and belonging systems. For me, experience is sovereign. And that's, that's the beauty to me of, you know, of you said that you meditate and, you know, people who do centering prayer and silent prayer forms. The beauty to me is that it's based on experience. And when you look at science, um, you know, any scientist worth their, worth their salt um, it's going to be based on experience and actual experiments um, that have been done. And I think it's, a tr- it's the same is true in religion, that you know, if your religion is based on a belief system or a belonging system that is not rooted in experience, it's not going to be 
long-standing. It, it's also not going to be something that's resistant to um, to a persecution, you know, because um, it, it, it's that deep underlying experience which um, which I think ultimately carries us. Wow. Yeah. So, were you born? Were your parents Quakers? My mother, uh, my mother was Quaker for a time in Buffalo, New York, and um, she would go to meetings um, on a regular basis. But she also, uh, you know, was baptized into Episcopalian faith. And my whole family, growing up, we were, um, you know, Episcopalians. But but my mom uh, always had an appreciation for the Quakers and encouraged me to you know, to be involved. So in your own estimation, if you're 52 now, how many years have you officially been a Quaker for? Uh, let's see, 15. Okay. And life before that versus life since that decision, how much did like declaring that faith change you? Well, I, I think what, what matters in my estimation is just the, the silent prayer. So if you're part of a centering prayer group that meets at your Episcopal church, um, and you attend that group, uh, you know, once a week and, um, and experience that silence. And there is something extraordinary about the collective silence. Uh-huh. Um, then I, I think for me, I, that's what's come to really be the most life-giving to me. So I don't know if it's really about the tradition per se, um, but about uh, practicing centering prayer. I would love for you to expand on this collective silence idea, because that's the one thing I'm like not craving, but it's an experience, as you said, that I haven't had yet, and I'm um, really interested in it. So how would you explain like the collective silence? Hey, everybody. I just want to thank you so much for listening to the show. Our numbers keep growing, and we have a premium package, and it would really help us out if some of you loyal fans would head over there and sign up. You get bonus monthly podcasts, you get a book I wrote, and you also get extra essays and other content. So please head over to MikeyOp.com. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com, and sign up today. So if you're sitting um, in a a seasoned uh, Quaker meeting where – it's been around for decades. There's going to be people in that meeting um, who are referred to as elders, and they've been doing this for decades themselves. And so there's a real quality of depth to these people. And when they're all sitting in silence, there's uh, something that's referred to in Quaker tradition as the gathered meeting. And that's when there's a sense that um, not only are you collected within yourself, and, and gathered and centered if you, you know, were sitting in meditation on your own. But there's something uh, that you're participating in where everyone is gathered and centered at the same time. And it's a profound thing. You know, it's, um, it's hard to explain, but you, you just feel like you've gotten onto this bus, you know, and that, that, all, that you're all in it together. And um, and there's some kind of common experience in the silence, and you know it's hard to articulate, but um, nevertheless there it is. And seasoned Quakers will often refer to uh, the the gathered meeting. That's incredible. So I mentioned that I grew up in California, so I've always been intrigued with Quakers. I realized as I said that that anyone who's not from California probably had no idea what I was talking about. And so just to explain from my side of this, Quakers, in my estimation, growing up, they're known as the peaceful people. Like they're very anti-war. And they're all for peace. I mean, that's why I said the thing about diplomacy and your father. Is that true, first of all, because I don't want to be inaccurate? Uh, do Quakers not believe in war or do they believe in peace? But that's not the same thing as not believing in war. Um, so there there was a, um, a branch of the Protestant revolution that is referred to as the Anabaptists. 
And the Anabaptists included the Quakers, the Mennonites, the Brethren, and the Amish, among, among some, other, some other groups. But what they all had in common is they all believed in what they referred to as the peace testimony. And that is that one of the, the clear testimonies of Jesus in the Gospels is the testimony of peace. That, uh, you know, if you can find a way out of violence, then you should. And, and the, you know, perfect example is when all, there's this mob that's gathered to stone this woman who has been uh, found in adultery. And the law of Moses uh, says, you know, such a woman should be stoned. You know, and they, they come to Jesus and they say, um, so, so Jesus, what should we do? You know, we, we're just about to stone this woman. And, uh, and he says, um, well, first he doodles in the sand, which I think speaks volumes, because he has enough wherewithal and peace and composure within himself that it, even in a mob scene, he's able to just kind of crouch down and, and kind of doodle in the sand. And then, but then he's, he rises up and he says, um, you know, he who is that without sin uh, cast the first stone. And and it's so it's so brutally true that it hurts, you know, um, and and that that is nonviolence at its core, you know. It's it's finding out the real kind of underlying um, machinery of violence and trying to subvert it. And and in this way, you, you know, because basically all those guys who were um, gathered to stone that woman, uh, so many of them had seen a prostitute in their youth themselves. And so they, they realize it's, total, it's totally hypocritical, you know, for them to start stoning this woman. Um, and, and so they, they, one by one, they walk away, you know. And, and that's, you know, that is the, uh, the peace testimony, that there is a way in and around and, uh, you know, through and beyond violence. Mm-hmm. So if a Quaker of this tradition and of the same faith you described were running for president, and some hard-nosed journalist wanted to really get them, how would they explain how a nation could take on the peace testament when they're already in amidst all these wars? And again, I'm not asking this to attack you or the religion. I'm just very curious because I, I want more people to join this uh, this bandwagon. Well, so so one very one very clear thing that, that people who are into the peace testimony, many of them advocate, is just uh, the phrase, reduce the violence. So it's not about uh, some kind of utopian um, idea that there's going to be no violence or we can eradicate this violence completely. I, I mean, we're realistic, right? But but what we want to do is reduce the violence. You know, find a way to um, you know to minimize the violence. And uh, you know, uh, one one Quaker that I talked to, you know, in Montana. Uh, said, you know, uh, I used to think that if somebody came through my, you know, uh, my window or my door at night and uh, wanted to steal from me or whatever, that I would just kill them, right? But but now, you know, my thought is I'm I'm just going to shoot them in the leg, you know, <laughs> and 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 for, you know, for me that was actually that that that's a revelation. It's like oh, okay, you know, he's reducing the violence, you know. So so it's, it's got to be realistic. It has to be practical. It, you know, it's got to be real world. But but how can we reduce the violence in any particular situation? And it has to be in context because you can't just think you know overarching kind of ideals about. You know, nonviolence is just not realistic. It has to have a particular context like that guy in Montana and then think of, you know, okay, in this situation, 
how can I reduce the violence? That was, like I said, like the, the stereotype of this religion, just for my audience to understand what it's like to grow up in California was, oh, those are like the crazy extra peaceful guys. And it was hilarious to me because I always was like, well, wait, that sounds like the best thing ever. And talking to you has been nothing but me relishing this community that you get and this gathered meeting idea because I've been in groups and I've loved a lot of groups, but the idea of a group where like the whole point is to sit in profound silence and not to argue and talk about who's right or wrong and who's doing it better than someone else. I mean, I just really appreciate that. Well, and, and one of the realizations that comes out of uh, profound silences, you know, we we're talking about finding your mission, finding your passion. But another thing that, that, that happens, and it's a, a fairly common um, you know, experience, is, is that we start to realize the, the profound value of life, that, that life, life is intrinsically sacred, and that all life um, has value and has integrity to it. So, you know, from that standpoint, we want to protect it. You know, we don't want to destroy it. And this is particularly true in terms of the environment, in terms of climate change. You know, we, we want to protect, and a lot of Quakers now refer to the Golden Rule 2.0. So the Golden Rule was do unto others as you would have them, you know, do unto you. The Golden Rule 2.0 is do unto future generations what you would have them do unto you. So, you know, in, in, the, con in the context of climate change, the Golden Rule 2.0 is very, very significant, you know, that we, we have to, um, you know, think about future generations and um and you know what we're what we're doing and how it's going to affect them yeah that's just <laughs> i love it because i am like literally today indexing a book on climate change and like the next generations and everything and i've never heard golden rule 2.0 that's a freaking awesome term i'm definitely gonna think about that for a while you did mention harming others and how valuable all life is so i am curious are a lot of quakers and are you yourself vegan and or vegetarian so um i i tried when i was in college i tried uh, being a vegetarian for about a year and I got, um, I lost a bunch of weight. I did not feel good. Then I read a book uh, called Eat for Your Type. And, and I found out that I'm a type O, my, my blood type is O. And the type O are really the historic carnivores. Um, you know, and, and that, you know, type O is really from a medical standpoint, there's a bunch, a number of physicians that say, you know, you really should have some meat in your diet. So since then, I um I have a little bit of meat um, in my in my diet and my wife is typo also and she found the same thing um, and she tried being a vegetarian for a while it didn't work for her either so I really think vegetarianism there again you know people like to make these broad overarching like this is the you know cookie cutter thing for everybody I don't like that kind of thinking I just think it depends on the context I mean the 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 subcontinent of India I think 95 percent or 90 percent um, they're type A blood. And so it makes sense that there's more vegetarians there than anywhere else in the world because the type A antigen is um, is very good at, um, you know, breaking down legumes and, uh, and breaking down other forms of protein besides meat. And so it just makes sense, you know, and, and, so, and it makes sense for, for, you know, a lot of people to be vegetarian. But I, I just don't think having one position like, you know, everybody should be this way um, yeah. is really helpful. But, you know, you know I, but I consume a medicinal amount of the, uh, meat and, and the meat that I consume is grass-fed and organic and um, it's ethically sourced. You know, it's, it's too complicated for me to understand it all, let alone to start telling other people what they can and can't do. But what I am digging throughout this interview is the, the cohesiveness of the movement, that it really does seem to, to be what its reputation was, at least for me where I grew up. And I think so many people think... Like even someone I was mentioning in passing, like, oh, we're interviewing a Quaker. 
They thought I was talking about like Quaker Oats. I, I think Richard Nixon was a Quaker. I think he's probably the most famous American Quaker. Is that true? Yes, yes, and and I don't I don't think he was FGC. I mean, there's there's three branches of Quakerism. I think he was um, FUM or EFI. I can't remember. But but Quakerism itself is is fairly broad and, and complex. I mean, I find that about all denominations. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I mean, Catholicism included. You know, there's there's yeah, a, yeah. there's a certain percentage of churches where they're just very I don't know, just very progressive, and others that aren't. And you know, it just depends on which church you're stepping into. Yeah, I thought a lot about it because it's like it would be nice if we all had one group but at the same time people do have different likes and differences it's interesting to me that people want to claim they're of one religion but the more you talk to anyone who's religious they're like oh no no but i'm in this discipline within this discipline and you're like okay and now i see it it's all nuanced just like you can live in a city and a county and a state in a country right you mentioned earlier when you're talking about the one of the greatest philosophical works of all time and i i've never heard the word so i, I can barely pronounce it back to you but i think you said it's the soliloquilila or something what was that yeah, it's the philokalia. It's a P H I L O K A L I A, and it, what what it means in in Greek is love of the beautiful. But it's it's a basically a four volume uh, text in in the English uh, was recently translated um, about I don't know what forty years ago, but um, it's basically uh, all the monasteries, um, uh, many monasteries in Greece. And um, monasteries in Egypt, um, monasteries, uh, you know, throughout, uh, you know, the, the eastern lands, they, um, their abbots uh, wrote down uh, what they thought was significant when it comes to silent prayer. And for them, you know, they refer to it as Hezekiah. Um, Hezekiah can be loosely translated in English as, um, as basically uh, inner stillness. Um, that's that's the the loose translation, but but you know how we get to that place of inner stillness and um, how we uh, you know develop that uh, inner stillness, and you know that to me is really the root. It's it's been the most life giving thing uh, you know in my life, and it's the, it's the inspiration for the books that I've written. Um, it, it's it, it's just an amazing uh, discovery. Uh, that has made life beautiful and and what i encourage people to do is simply just to to do it to try it and i think the very best method to try it is just simply to sit um every day for as much as you can stand so if you can only do like let's say you're starting with um february and you say okay i'm going to i'm going to try this maybe one day you can only sit there for three or four minutes and you just, you just have to get up. You got to do something fine. That, and just write down in your calendar four minutes. And then the next day sit again, maybe that time it's going to be five or six minutes, you know, and, and just do that for an entire 30 days. And by the end of 30 days, even if it's just been, you know, a little bit of sitting here, a little there, you're getting in the habit of doing it daily. That's the most important thing. And then in time, you know, you'll, get to the recommended amount that, um, you know, my teacher, Thomas Keating, uh, Benedictine monk, uh, you know, he recommends at least uh, 20 minutes twice a day. And so eventually, you know, you'll get there. But I think usually people are too rigid and they try to sit too much too early and then they get burned out. So um, I think the best method is just to sit every day for as long as you can stand and then if you do miss a day, just start all over again with the goal of just having 30 consecutive days where you sit every day. 
Um, even if one or two or three of the days is like, you know, three minutes, doesn't matter. Um, you're just getting in the habit of sitting. Wow. Um, you've been such a fantastic interview. You're passionate. You're interesting. I can tell how much you care about others and their journey through this world. And I just uh, really appreciate it. Before we jump to the end of the interview, is there anything you want to add? Well, as, as far as, you know, if people are interested in centering prayer, you know, which is a, the tradition that I that I now, um, oftentimes in workshops, I I teach to Quakers, uh, ironically. But um, but if you are interested in centering prayer, you can just uh, Google contemplative outreach, and you will find some, some centering prayer websites. You'll also find some centering prayer retreats throughout the nation that are sometimes weekend retreats or week-long retreats, 10-day retreats. But um, that's, I think, when when the whole thing really starts to make more sense and really gains momentum is if you can do a retreat. So, um, like I said, you know, it's the most life-giving thing that I've found uh, in my in my 52 years. I, I would love to see other people experience that coming home and that, um, that peace, which, you know, it, it's an ancient thing and an extraordinary thing. And all the various mystics of, of the world's religions are not lying to us. It's very life-giving. Oh, man, that's so sweet, and I really appreciate you coming on the show, and I just appreciate you existing. To everyone, again, you know, always in the notes you can find him, but Amos Smith, he has, probably by the time you listen to this, three books out, but definitely two. Please support him, and please support our show, and head over to MikeyOp.com, that's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com, and uh, sign up for a premium package. Again, thank you so much to Amos Smith, and to everyone else listening at home, my name is Mike Oppenheim, you have been listening to Coffin Talk, and we will see you you see you on the moon and then i see that you see me and i see you hear this tune and i feel